Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I am already experiencing joy from having the opportunity to interview Ingrid today. I'm going to let her say her last name and go ahead and tell us about the work that she does and how we can find her and what her website is, as well as her wing and her stack, because I don't know Ingrid that well. And the way that I do know her is from a wonderful Enneagram community that she has created, which I'll also let her tell people about so that you can also benefit from all the fun posts that I've been enjoying. And without further ado, Ingrid, please introduce yourself to all of us. Tell us the details. Thank you so much. So my name is Ingrid Hurwitz. And what I do, my entire life revolves around the Enneagram. So I do couples work. I do executive coaching and leadership development work in corporates. I do uh, one-on-one work. And I also do some coaching supervision and train coaches in how to work with the Enneagram, but specifically in a trauma-informed way. So So when did you discover the Enneagram? How many years ago? And how did you find your way to wing and type and stack? Yes. So I'm actually fairly new to the Enneagram compared with some of the teachers who I've worked with and studied with. So I discovered the Enneagram in about 2007 in the corporate space. I was on one of these team effectiveness programs and the guy got my number immediately from the way I was dressed and behaving and how I arrived late and uh, trying to entertain everybody. He said, oh, you're a seven. And I had yet to discover what that meant. It sounded like a good thing at the time. I've succumbed to see the error of my ways and thinking that any Enneagram type is a good thing. My instinctual sequence is SXSO with self-press completely blind. And I've got a nine and a four in my trifics. So kind of SX794. A lot of creativity in that tri-type as well. Yes. How does your creativity manifest? It manifests in being creative about reality and a lot of magical thinking, I think, is the main pitfall of it. Ah, Um, that sounds like the sexual instinctual piece as well and the self-pres blind. Yes, exactly. So that's one of the things that Catherine Forbes says about that tri-type is that a the magical thinking can be a thing. Ah. So, How's that yes, shown up I, for you in your life? Why is magical thinking a problem? Well, I think that the Archangel Michael is going to do my tax return for me. I <laughs> 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 will he do mine after he does yours. I would love that. Okay. Probably. And then I have outlandish fantasies about how my life is still going to turn out. You know, that... I might go and live in a tree house in Turkey, you know, when in fact I live in one of the most boring suburbs in Johannesburg. So it's kind of a complete lack of realism about the parameters of reality. Why do you live in one of the most boring suburbs in Johannesburg? That's a really good question. 
Mm. I love the weather. I've got a beautiful park nearby. My daughter's at a school very close by. I've got great friends. Mm. I have wonderful interests, Tai Chi and beer danza, and a lovely community within those interests groups. How old is your daughter? She's 17. She's finishing school this year. And she's your only child? No, I have a son who's 27. Okay, so we're at a similar stage. Mine are 15, 17, 18, and 23. Wow. Wow. Yours are closer together and you've got a few more of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Overactive uterus. So (laughs) I finally figured out what was causing it and yeah, stopped. (laughs) That's sexual blind. That's what that looks like. No, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) But yeah, no, when you have children, the suburbs are a wonderful place for so many reasons. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, that's actually your self-pres poking through. It's probably a wise choice. You're, you know, social sexual or I'm sorry, was it social sexual or sexual social? Sexual social. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. would have you living in a tree house. So we know your self-pres is online. <laughs> Thank you. I feel so encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny as I've been really looking at people's stacks And especially, you know, as an internal medicine doctor, people often come to me when their lives are falling apart, when they really are um, suffering from a lot of the consequences of their blind spot. And the self-pres blind people come to me very often because I also am board certified in obesity medicine and I work with craving and addiction. And a lot of people have developed unhealthy relationships with food or other substances. So we work a lot on that. And... You know, people really can have their life quite in disarray when people are self-pres blind and sexual dominant from what I'm noticing. So, yeah, I'm celebrating for you what amazing blind spot work it feels like you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And do you actually submit your taxes? Do you get them in? I have found somebody who can do it for me. I've managed to outsource the parts of it that can be outsourced. The parts that can't be outsourced, like actually eating, um, I'm still working on. Yeah. So you forget to eat? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I want to just celebrate that too. I know so many self-pres blind people that just don't file their taxes for like years at a time. And, you know, they, so the fact that you're outsourcing it is actually what I would call wisdom. Like I am self-pres dominant and that doesn't mean that I enjoy self-pres things, but they're on my radar. So I'm very good at making sure that they get taken care of. And it doesn't hurt that I have a self-pressed social point one with a two-wing mother who loves doing a lot of this stuff for me. So it has infantilized me a little bit. And I'm, you know, practicing being a grown-up and working on boundaries there. But, um, you know, she's 76. So I'm going to have to become more autonomous soon anyway. But it's been beautiful and complicated, as all mother-daughter relationships are. But it's so interesting that you speak about that and how the blind instinct can seriously derail us. I mean, I do see that in um, all of my clients as well, that the blind instinct is the one that is going to derail their lives. And I remember from one of the teachings of Russ and Jessica was appreciating that your blind instinct is actually going to undermine what's most important to you. 
So the yeah. thing that you're preoccupied with in your dominant instinct that you're living your life for is going to be torpedoed by your blind instinct if yes. you don't catch wake up. And another thing that Jessica said that I found so helpful was when you mobilize your blind instinct in service of your dominant instinct and your healthy instinct, that you realize how necessary it is as a foundation for the others. Mm. Now, whichever it happens to be, I mean, in, in self-praise, it's probably easier to see that if I don't keep my self-praise stable and have some healthy life foundations, I'm not going to be able to do the work that I want to do. And I see that that message lands very well with self-praise blind, say, executive clients. I worked with a with a self-praise blind 837 the other day. And, you know, she's driven herself into the ground. She had a kidney replacement. She, you know, has been on the brink of burnout a number of times. And when I said that to her around, you know, how the blind instinct is the one that's going to derail all the things that you care most about, that's when it lands, is I'm not doing this because I like it. I'm doing it because it's a support for what I truly love. So that's been quite helpful for me as a way of framing the blind instinct. I don't know how that sounds. Yeah. Well, and I want to take a moment to just name what I think about when I think of a sexual seven is we often think of that person as sort of a dreamer. It's like you can get so fall in love with romantic ideas that you can kind of float away. I thought the analogy of like living off in a tree house or, you know, something magical and, um, but not particularly practical. But when we talk about the sexual instinctual energy, it also has something to do with our intimate partnerships and that, you know, one-to-one space. How has that been for you as a sexual dominant person? Do you, have you idealized and had sort of romantic ideas around partners? Do you get easily bored? These are things we hear about sevens. What have you noticed in that domain if you're willing to talk about it? Yeah, sure. So six seven Naranjo's uh, kind of moniker for that was mesmerization or fascination. Mm-hmm. That's the, the kind of nickname. And when I realized what that meant, it's basically that the trance of SX7 is to become mesmerized, is to go into a trance-like fascination with someone or something. So the SX energy can be about a person. It can also be about a, an idea or a pursuit or an ideal. Mm. No, it, that SX energy is not necessarily about a person, and particularly in SX7, it can be about the esoteric the realm of the esoteric. So I have had that predisposition in my life to become very um, mesmerized with particular people and to completely idealize them. Like they are the instantiation of the Apollonian archetype itself. And I know you're interested in Jung, you know. It's like yeah. some, some man will represent knowledge itself like the platonic ideal in some way, like ridiculous level of idealization. But it didn't have to be a living person. Like I literally fell in love with the romantic poet Shelley when I was at university. I was so utterly in love with him that I went and had our composite star chart done. Wow. 
Like this <laughs> is my abler soul. Have you heard this term? No. Abler soul, abler soul. No, um, Cynthia Bourgeau writes about this in um, The Eye of the Heart. And she talks about her relationship with a man who dies. And it was one of the people that she was studying and learning with. And she's got this connection with him from the world beyond. And basically, she writes about how her work is actually him channeling through her and their chemistry. You know, they, it sounds like the sexual, instinctual, energetic chemistry is still the fuel for her work. And she identifies as 0.7 um, from what I've heard. So there is that element to it that you're talking about that you can fall in love and what she speaks to, though, is that it's presencing and, and you know, holding that with presence and conscience. And am I using that to, I think, where the self-pres comes in is, is there practical evidence that this sexual instinctual energy, specifically, I'll speak of sexual sevens, is there also some concrete evidence that this is being used towards contribution in the world? And that's the self-pres piece. And, and social's in the middle there, but it, but self-pres is really about what is on the ground. Like what is, I can touch, I can feel, I can measure. It's, there, there's, it's a resource. It's like, here is a home. Here is yeah. my retirement. Here is my, you know, way I feed myself. Like it's very practical in some ways. Um, if I can show that all of those things have basic competency around them, then I'm not being derailed by my sexual seven energy. But if I take yes. a good look at that and say, oh, I don't actually have any real relationships. I don't actually have a home that is good or safe or comfortable for me. I don't have money that relieves my stress. You know, I'm, there's like a lot of practical needs I'm not taking care of. Then it means the blind spot needs more work, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And thanks for uh, bringing that uh, term to my awareness because I read that book, I Have the Heart, and I loved it. I listened to it on audiobook, and I didn't pick that phrase up. But I think it is something like that. And when I read that book, I was like, this woman is on mushrooms. She's definitely a sexual servant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I relate, I relate so much to that way of being and thinking. It's like living in a liminal world. Yes, there's so much fantasy going on. At the same time, as it, it you know, it does have dimension. And but I think your question is key: is how is it landing? Is it generative? Is it making a contribution in some way, or is it an escapist fantasy? So for me, the journey has been about getting away from an escapist fantasy into being able to use that access to other kind of forms of awareness. I don't like to say dimensions of consciousness. It sounds, it sounds kind of fake. But the movement for me from as a very young child becoming very spiritualized and very esoteric and wanting to excarnate and doing transcendental meditation from when I was 11 and basically being a mystic from a very young age. Going gradually, getting into my 40s and realizing that a lot of that was actually trauma-related dissociation. Now, I was actually using spirituality to exit earthly life and to avoid suffering. 
So it was basically an SX7 form of spiritual bypass. So moving from that to retaining the love of spirituality and the love of different understandings and different cosmologies, different spiritual practices, but grounding it in, okay, now what? What am I doing with these things that I've discovered by exploring every different philosophy and having been a, going to synagogue three times a week for eight years and Catholic mass three times a week for four years? You know, I've immersed myself in, in a lot of different traditions, Sufism for six years. Like, okay, now what? Mm, and starting yeah. to be able to ground and synthesize the things that I've learned into my work, whether it's facilitation in an executive boardroom or my coaching training. So, I mean, my work has been in very kind of dry places. Most of my work happens in the financial sector, which yeah. is anything is the opposite of, you know, esoteric. Well, it's really interesting to hear you describe that because here we have a self-pressed dom and a self-pressed blind and, you know, sexual dom, sexual blind talking right here. And when I think about flipping that and what does it look like when self-pres is on top and sexual is blind, it was this over fixation with achieving all of these goals and establishing my base like basically deciding I was going to become a doctor at 10 years old and that mm -hmm. I was going to be a wife and a mother and have a large family and literally executing on that plan with my head down to like dotting every I, crossing every T and checking off every box until I hit my mid-30s and had finished the list. And then there was like this dry, empty husk of a relationship with my husband, of a relationship with myself, of that spirituality, which even though spirituality had always been important to me, like I also grew up in a family where there was no spirituality. We were Roman Catholic, but we just went to church like robots and did the thing and like left. But there was something inside of me that as a child, like this same 10-year-old child, would go to church on Good Friday and Holy Thursday all alone and I would walk and I would just sit in this church and there was something that was, this was my little sexual instinctual energy wanting to have deeper connection with something. And, you know, being an evidence-based Western medicine physician who is highly trained with all the best degrees, you know, I went out into the world expecting to do great things and realizing that I could be successful in a medical practice by the economic standards and the society standards. But if I was really honest and could drop below the deceit, it's like, I'm not making any kind of impact here that I actually believe in. And that is really unsettling for a self-pres three to have worked so hard to have gotten to this place and then say, why does it all feel empty and like none of it matters? And to then start the spiritual journey 13 years ago and to really dive into that blind spot, also divorce and start discovering what I actually want in relationships as opposed to the auto program pilot of, you know, marrying the guy I met at 19 at 23 and just plowing through life together and really leaning into the deep uncertainty 
that lives in my blind spot and just moving into that anyway. And sort of, for me, it feels like opening my heart to the universe and seeing what it gives me and then watching how my self-pres social lens will judge that and just deciding which part of that is discernment that I want to hold on to and which part mm. of that is fixation or neuroses that I want to let go of. And sometimes I've swung too far the other way where people think I'm sexual dominant, but that yeah. is just playing with the blind spot. Sometimes we get a little rigid or a little, you know, imbalanced in the other direction as we're discovering it. We play with it clumsily is what I like to say. And then we kind of equilibrate and find a place of balance between the dominant and the blind spot. And then we get to look at the middle instinct. That's what I learned from Catherine Fav. And I'll be releasing an episode with her very soon about how that middle instinct actually requires more balance in the dominant and the blind spot before we can start doing the nuanced work that we have to do on the middle. It's interesting. But I love your your story about you know how you got to that place where you ticked off every item on the list and then the metaphor of the kind of empty husk. Yeah. That is such a powerful metaphor, you know, and brings to mind the Sandra Matri teaching on three where she speaks about the the challenge for three is so great in getting onto the spiritual path because they face a dual attack from the superego. I don't know if you've come across this teaching, but I found it so powerful. When I developed my materials for my three, one of my three workshops, I literally cried for almost two days. Yeah. my work on three about how when three's really get onto the spiritual path, the dual attack is that one, the image that they've built up and invested in creating is empty and then being attacked on the other side by their superego for the fact that they haven't built up anything else internally and that the heart is empty. So it's like the outside is meaningless, the inside is also meaningless. Now what? And the the kind of midlife crises that threes have as a result are so, so difficult to navigate. Yeah. Well, and there's this fighting for me between my instinctual energies, like my self-pres voice is really loud, but my sexual instinctual voice became really loud as well. And so learning how in this law of three way, to hold the energies of both because it's easy to see how the energies of one threatens the priorities of the other and that we really have to find a way to come to terms with that inherent tension and how will I be in relationship to that because we're never going to quote unquote solve the puzzle. There will always be tension between all three instinctual energies and this is why I love the analogy of yoga. It's really about balance. And sometimes I got to shift my position a little and sometimes I got to relax and sometimes I got to summon a little more energy. And so really bringing that into how we work with instinctual drives has felt most skillful for me. Yeah, that sounds so powerful, Cara. Like, yeah, and also pointing out that, you know, sometimes we swing too far. I remember Urania Pais once saying that blind or repressed instinct comes out explosively. Yeah. in times of stress and yeah. I've also I've definitely noticed that like an absolute obsession with self-praise things but in a very distorted way 
like a panicky way, not a grounded way. Yeah, totally. I know that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, extreme expression of that instinct. And uh, yeah, and just your emphasis on the fact that the one appears to threaten the other. The blind appears to be a threat to the dominant. And that balancing out is so crucial. It's such a journey. So you're really helping people to look at the trauma that has led to the development of the personality, the defensive structures. I mean, I think that we're probably born with our stack, our instinctual stack. That's probably um, biological because these are unconscious drives that are just firing. I believe that's probably the first thing that comes online. And I think a lot of people believe that we're also born with our Enneagram type. So there's going to be some combination between our instinctual stack and our Enneagram type that then we're going to be in a certain context and we're all going to form unique object relations based on what the dynamic between child and mom, child and dad, child and family or world. So how are you working with that? Would you sort of flesh out a little bit about what you enjoy doing and maybe some examples? How can we get a sense of what your gift is and how you're using it in the world? Thank you. So what I do is I synthesize some of the core Enneagram teachings like Naran Four on the degradation of consciousness and the early childhood developmental patterns. And then obviously, you know, Almas and Maitri and people that talk about some of these core wounds, the holes, those kinds of things that contribute to our sense of what our deficit is from an Enneagram perspective. Like, what is the loss that we're trying to compensate for with our Enneagram type strategy? So a lot of that is is covered in our Enneagram theory, you know, like Almas's theory of holes or or Maitri talking about what the key wound is that we need to touch into and be able to be with in order to alleviate the intense need for our Enneagram style as a coping strategy. So say for Enneagram 7, there's a sense of a kind of core existential lostness, an existential hole. Uh, For 6, say it's a sense of inner groundlessness. And until we can touch into those primary wounds at the heart of our psyche, we can't release our defensive pattern. So the Enneagram has a whole lot of language and nomenclature for describing these core wounds. And then you've got other bodies of knowledge that describe them in less esoteric ways and in more grounded theoretical ways that are, in my mind, much more useful to the work and especially work in places like corporates where it's got to be made accessible. I don't like using esoteric language about the Enneagram in any context. So I don't use the word essence, not even in my private teaching. And I joke about it. I got this from Tom Condon. He says he doesn't like to use the word essence because it sounds like something that could leak, like a gas. (laughs) No, I don't to make a metaphysical claim. And so I like to use interpersonal neurobiology, like Dan Siegel's work on the adaptive um, patterns that we have that are based on the activation of certain neurological circuits. So instead of talking about vices or virtues, we're talking about certain 
um, patterns that we learn and that become neurobiologically wired in as habits. And in that regard, I also draw on the neuroaffective relational model, NARM, which is a system for uh, of trauma therapy developed by Dr. Lawrence Heller. And in that system, it's very much dealing with adaptive survival styles that are a response to deficits in the early holding environment. So when you grow up as a little child, you're going to experience deficits in attunement, say, where somebody's not connecting with you in that one-on-one way, where they're not making eye contact with you, where they're not noticing what you're feeling, where they're not really that interested in your inner experience or your feelings at all. They basically just want to shove a bottle in your mouth and for you to keep quiet as quickly as possible. Or, you know, in any way that your natural expression as an infant is not met, where there are these fault lines in the holding environment where you don't experience continuity. And and the Enneagram gives us language for that. You know, we, we don't receive unconditional positive regard, which gives rise to shame, or our needs are shamed. And then, you you know, you get the heart center patterns there. And then our autonomy and our will is not supported. So we get violations of our dignity and we get humiliated as children. And then in the the head center, you know, some of the core issues there around safety, feeling held in a more existential sense of, am I safe here? Is anybody concerned with my needs? Where am I? So, How did that show up for you? We talk about seven basically wasn't getting the type of nourishment they wanted from the nurturing figure. Do you resonate mm-hmm. with that? We did a series with Belinda Gore on object relations. So my listeners are learning a lot about that. It'd be sweet if you could give us an example yeah. of how that showed up for you. So for seven, I think one of the key metaphors I've found with seven is a sense of being lost. So not having a sense of where I am in the cosmos, in the bigger scheme of things, existentially, like what am I, where am I, and being able to orient oneself in life. Interesting, okay. So so it's very much about a sense of existential safety. And I think nurturing is one of the things that gives us a sense of it's okay to be here. I'm held, I'm safe, someone cares about my needs. And if that isn't true, then one needs to exit reality as quickly as possible because it's unbearable. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a feeling that I'm lost. No one cares about me. I sometimes use the image of a stray dog. Or if you imagine a tiny child, like a three-year-old, lost at the airport. That's, I think, what life feels like for a seven. That's is- so helpful. And that's helpful for me because a lot of people want to say I'm a seven or a six with a seven wing. And when I heard you talk about the humiliation, that's more of a heart-centered thing. I mean, for me, you know, I grew up in an environment where emotions were considered a personal problem, and it was a little bit yucky if you were showing your neediness, you know, being Mm -hmm. raised by an eight and a one, you know, self-pressed social, very like, we don't really do emotions, we get things done. And, you know, we kind of just, like, that's not a part of what's there's not a window of welcome for it. So I feel sad when I say that because, you know, my parents showed love through providing, through working, 
through meeting every single need that my sister and I had from a safety and gave us a lot of freedom and choice. And like those domains were very well held. And for me being born a three, and I suspect um, my sister tested as a seven, but I suspect she might be a three with a two wing as well, which is a common mistyping because we both are driven by this need to succeed, by these achievements and accomplishments. And it's like a, am I okay yet? Are you proud of me yet now? You know, do you see me? And if I show up in a way that's uncomely or not put together or like I am not okay, there's deep vulnerability there. There's like deep shame. And it's also like, ooh, I'm putting my emotional reaction on you and I don't trust that that's okay. I'm burdening you. And so I got to quickly wrap all that up and take care of that myself because there it's taken me a long time to actually be okay with having needs and talking about them. Yes. And there's still a big cringe factor and I expect to be rejected as soon yeah. as I talk about feelings and needs that I think somebody else is not going to enjoy. Absolutely. And that is an example so clearly of small t trauma. Yeah. You know, it's not some massive, big adverse childhood experience, but it's ongoing, chronic and frequent small t traumatization in that your authentic feelings are invalidated. So for me, this is where understanding complex development trauma is so important because of the impact that it has on our sense of identity and our inner organization. Like what happens when a big feeling comes up? What do you do with it? You're just going to get rid of it as quickly as possible. It's like, oh, that's inconvenient. Better put it away. Yeah. No. Do you have a suspicion of which Enneagram types your children are? Yeah, I know what their types are. What types are they? My daughter is a self prayer 793, and my son is a self prayer 593. Okay, so I think this is really interesting that kids sometimes will come out with instinctual energy that is flipped from the parent. Yeah. Like they, you know, and I, I have a theory, I don't know if this is true, because on the one hand, are we just born with it? But on the other hand, do we recognize the void of a certain instinctual energy because our parents are giving us a lot of the other ones? And so there's mm -hmm. almost this neurosis that develops around the one that our parent is weaker in. And so we over-prioritize it or like make it almost more important. What do you think about that theory? I 100% relate to that anecdotally. I mean, individually for myself, that is the spot on truth that you just articulated. I wouldn't know if I could really generalize. I mean, I have seen that pattern, but I wouldn't yeah. like to make a huge claim that it's always that way. But that's certainly true for me. I mean, my mother is super self-pressed. Yeah. You know, and I, it was always like, I had grated carrots and the umbrella and, you know, I always had everything that I needed yeah. physically. So there was really good instrumental nurturing, you know, fed and warm and looked after in that way, but with none of the one-on-one -on -one attunement and quite stifled. 
No, so she's a stop press six, which means that for her, my individuation was threatening. So that's my main memory is every time I wanted to do anything, her saying, no, Ingrid, be careful. Are you sure you want to do that? Like when I wanted to travel after school, which is a much later memory. Oh, no, you can't do that. Are you okay? You, you can't do that alone. So that was something that had been going on since I was tiny, you know, kind of wanting to inhibit me with that South Press 6 warmth and care slash anxiety. So the, the SX7 is, is a big-time rebellion against that. And then also the South When did you Press- rebel? Like what age did you start being like, forget it, Mom, I'm doing me? Probably when I was about four. (laughs) That's so funny. It's another reason I know I'm not a seven because I started doing my rebellion in my late thirties. So I have (laughs) this like very delayed de-identification process. And that's just another way that you can tell the difference between a seven and a three. The three will chameleon until they can't bear the chameleon anymore. And then it's almost more painful to shapeshift for you than to be who I am. And that's often the pain that suddenly propels the three to start a podcast and just talk about everything on the air. You know, like that was <laughs> never something I would have done. And I'm laughing because, you know, my mom's a self-pres social one, two, six. And so a lot of the same energy that you're talking about, but it's triple super ego and being a point one triple super ego type, it's that you are being a bad whatever if you don't do it this way. And so for me as a shame type, it's really had to be like, and is that true? Am I really a terrible person if I don't want to revolve my life around my kids every minute and I want to give them more autonomy and choice and freedom than, you know, and actually be doing my own thing and trust that they've got it because there's no evidence to indicate that they don't? Like this has been a recurring theme, especially because she's here helping me raise my kids since my divorce. And, you know, we've been living in close contact for 18 and a half years now. So it's a really interesting dance between living with your superego structure (laughs) and having to kind of develop like my own clarity around what is shame driving and what is actually my truth. And am I okay with actually making a mistake and causing harm and actually not showing up as quote unquote good or successful. And can my ego sustain that? You know, it's a really interesting journey. Wow. And I imagine there like being able to, I don't know what keys you have and what practices you have to drop out of the self-questioning and self-analysis around is the shame or is this this, but to find in your body and in your heart. Yeah. Well, I just feel it now right away. Like it's a body sensation and I'm like, oh, hello, sweet little heart. You're hurting right now. And it's like, this is where I love my resonant healing practice because Mm -hmm. it really, really, um, my heart broke open through nonviolent communication because this was Uh when I actually discovered I had feelings and needs and learned words for them and how to be in containers that allowed me to express them and to actually have these healing, restorative experiences of people that could hold it because they developed skills for that, for holding it within themselves and others. And then just having all of these corrective experiences 
and then launching into the resonant healing world where I learned to hold myself with warmth and where I really learned to identify unconscious contracts that were running my behavioral programs and going through this process that we use in resonant healing where you time travel to those early moments where the contracts made perfect sense for your survival, but then to realize at this moment in time that they're actually self-sabotaging. And so going through this process that we use with resonant healing, we literally have a ceremonial phrase where it's, do you want to keep this contract? And we're talking to our essential self. And sometimes the answer is still, yeah, I'm not willing to let go of it. And then that just means there's more trauma work to do that there's more healing, there's more places to visit, but there is that moment and I've experienced it now eight or nine times around different very important contracts where you suddenly have that moment of clarity where you see how it hurts you and there's actually a hell yes from the body, heart and head. It's like a full integration shock point moment where you're like, I release this contract and I revoke this vow and instead I give myself the blessing to. And now when that comes up, I can hold that shame and that grief with the warmth that it needs and actually remember the blessing, even though it still feels uncomfortable. But the more I lean into the blessing with community, with teachings that resonate as true and not a spiritual bypass thing, it can be incredibly hard. It can require a lot of discipline to actually choose the blessing. And as Mm. we practice it more, we get that embodied sense of, wow, this is so much more nourishing than Mm. this other way I was trying to take care of myself, which is why I'm so passionate. And I had my teacher, Sarah Payton on, if people want to listen to the prior episode And I am going to do a plug that the Resonant Healing Summit, which is completely free and is loaded with a ton of amazing speakers on trauma, is about to launch in 10 days, I think. So people can go to Sarah Payton's website and register for the Resonant Healing Summit and completely for free listen to 30 or 40 different speakers that are trauma-informed and are going to be talking about effective neuroscience. So a lot of what both Ingrid and I do is going to be talked about in this conference. Have you ever attended it or heard Sarah teach? I haven't. You might like it. Yeah. Yeah, sounds great. Hopefully I'm tickling your seven that you're trying to recover from. You probably have other things to do, but. (laughs) I'm trying to uh, only buy three courses a week. (laughs) Exactly. I love that. This is another reason why I have to keep that, you know, as I did my trifix, I'm 371. And yeah. so, yeah, that seven energy is never far. And oh, I am, yeah. I have overindulged a little bit this quarter. And the funny thing is that there are trainings that I'm in this year that will complete. And I'm actually making this little vow to myself that in 2024, I am not going to do any trainings and I'm going to turn inward, and I'm going to write, and I'm going to create, and I'm going to build. And so I'm naming it here. It's something saying it into the space makes it even more real for myself. But for this year, I'm still going to overindulge in all my trainings. And I actually took eight months off from practicing medicine just to do more courses and trainings and inner work. Wow, but that sounds amazing. 
but I want to loop back because when you were speaking a little bit earlier, I just, I got such goosebumps over my whole body when you spoke about the warmth mm. and the bliss, you know, like being able to hold that experience with warmth, to be able to hold that wounding, that compulsion, those contracts and their implications with warmth and self-compassion is so huge. And it's really, I see a lot of our Enneagram work being about that too. When you bring it together with the trauma healing work, the developmental trauma work, about how do we build our inner capacity to tolerate a broader range of feelings? How do we tolerate our pain and our compulsions, the passion of our type? How do we tolerate that pain enough and hold it with enough warmth that we don't have to do our time? That for me is the biggest breakthrough of, of bringing trauma and traumatology into the Enneagram world because it's so easy for us to have a super ego lens on our type and say, oh no, that's the three thing, I mustn't do that. Or you know, for the super ego to run our personal development process rather than to be able to see that our type is a fix. I mean, the fixation is a fix. It's like a drug. We use it to numb pain. So to be able to stay with the impulses that would drive that compulsive behavior and the way that you use that word warmth, it's so key. It's so, it feels so substantive. You know, you're not just saying self-love. You know, it's not words. Yeah. When you say warmth, I feel what you mean. Yeah, it's it has a temperature to it. Yeah, mm. you can feel it. And I think that this is so important to bring into the Enneagram community and all the clients that we're working with. One of the things that I know really activates me is that sometimes on the typing journey, people aren't held with the warmth that they need as they start to look into some of their egoic patterns. And I think specifically like when maybe somebody's not ready to see their type yet. Like maybe they're not ready to land like where they might actually be. And I think that there's some tension between people needing to get their type right so that they're doing the right kind of work versus meeting people where they are. And that's one thing I love about Trifix. There are a lot of people that don't like Trifix because the opinion is that I've even heard people use the word it's dangerous because it keeps you from landing on your point and doing the true work of that point. And for me, I think that a lot of people can use Trifix to find their way to type. And obviously, mm -hmm. if you're identifying with a certain Trifix or Tri-type, um, whichever language you're using, then I think that there's something important to address there. Like I know my gluttonous tendencies are absolutely not something to be ignored. And it's not the core wound. But there's nothing wrong with working on my gluttony and my gluttony will lead me to my core wound. So I just believe that there's something about both the wings as well as the tri-type that helps us get to the core issues of the core point. And ultimately, we're gonna have to do work at every point to either bring it more online or tamp down the neuroses of it so 
I think it's a little narcissistic to think that I know the order that you should go in on your journey of self-discovery. Oh, wow. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm totally in alignment with what you say. And on my personal coaching journey, you know, knowing my type, going to a coach and working on my nine-ish defenses, you know, working on what has been deployed as my nine strategy to avoid certain forms of suffering. We didn't start with seven at all. We started with the nine fog blanket that I pull up. Mm. So I know that blanket bit. too, because I have an arrow to nine. So, you know, there's a high and low side that happens there as well. Yes. This doesn't look like a nine, but it's nine-ish. Yes. Yeah. So working on that for me was incredibly helpful. And then with the four in my traffics, there's a whole dynamic. This the seven one four triangle, having the four in the traffics for a seven has a whole lot of dynamics. Fours have, I mean, sevens have got a very vicious super ego at the low end of one. And there's a lot of shame. So I've found working with the particular patterns and other traffics elements. So, so, so helpful. And the wings, obviously, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I talked about the gluttony and for my one fix, lots of super ego stuff going on, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of it is also object relations from having a point one mother. So I have yeah. a lot of point one energy. People have thought that I'm a one, but that's just because I can be rigid, not because mm -hmm. I'm perfectionistic per se. But mm -hmm. when I get myself fixated on a goal... I can sometimes mm. think there's one right way to get to that endpoint. And so remembering yeah. that um, just because I'm attached to it doesn't mean that it's right has been really important. Yeah. Now, these things are incredibly helpful. But for me, the core thing is not so much about analyzing the Enneagram. I mean, when I go to my coach, I should just say, I go to Tom. I see Tom as a coach, Tom Condon. And what I love most about him is that he pretends to know nothing about the Enneagram. If I start speaking about it and I say, oh, this might be my harmonic, whatever, he looks at me and he's like, what's that? Yeah, because <laughs> what we're doing is we're depersonalizing it then. We're not really having the direct experience of that. We're getting very heady instead of really, how does that feel? And that's what my diamond work is doing for me and my diamond group and my breath work with my coach. We try mm -hmm. to stay as far away from narrative. You know, I mean, sometimes I feel like the narrative's important and my teacher's like, well, where is this in your body? Like, how is this feeling presenting? And we just start there and you realize that the narrative is sometimes just keeping the fixation in play. 100%. And that's a huge feature of NAM, this neuroaffective relational model that I work with a lot is that usually the... The narrative is the ego agenda. So yeah. clients can arrive in the room and for coaching and the agenda is a narrative agenda that is actually completely baked into their core strategy, their type. You know, their, their ego type strategy wants to set the coaching agenda and it is disembodied. You know, it's abstract, it's sometimes dissociated depending on what type pattern you're dealing with. But 
Yeah, for me, the question is, how do we come into the here and now together, you and I sitting here, talking and engaging with our hearts here, with our minds available in the present moment, with that, you use the word resonance in a different way from, from your modality, but with our hearts in resonance, with the capacity for connection, the ability to tune to one another and to, to be present to one another in the moment, that's got nothing to do with the symbol in our heads. You know, right. it's here we are together. And for me, that's the ultimate purpose of, of the coaching and working with the Enneagram is can we be with each other as human beings? and do wonderful things together that are meaningful and creative and generative for society and healing, you know. So in my programs, I prefer people not to say their type or to put it in their name box in the Zoom, you know. So let's rather, you can talk about your type if you want to, but I'd prefer us to be with each other. And if we see certain type archetypes, then deal with those as archetypes. You know, like if I saw somebody being very dissociated, then I would obviously have some kind of hypotheses about what was going on there based on my Enneagram knowledge. But how can I, as an Enneagram coach, teacher, practitioner, stay as close to the real person with me as possible? And when somebody is wrestling with their type and trying to get me to tell them what it is, I won't. I'll say yeah. I don't. You're the only person who's going to know, and it might take you six years. I do know people that have taken more than six years to find their type, and that's a journey, and I can support you. Here's some things to read, but literally there's nobody that can tell you. So when I hear you say that you encourage people not to talk about their type structure, what I'm mm -hmm. noticing as an image type is that a lot of my wounding is about not feeling like people are seeing me like this, um, I'm not being seen. Yes. And by that, you can have that in the low level of three of being like, you're not seeing me as successful or as the ego ideal. But what that's morphed into is the core wound of not really feeling understood and there's something that gives me a sense of safety when people know where I fixate and they can sort of hold me and care for me in that knowing I might do this thing. And for me, when I know somebody else's type stack structure, there are things I've learned. There are maps that I have in my head that I should approach certain areas with more care because likely that's going to be a touchy thing for them or where the juice is going to be. So how am I going to help us access that? So I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but I'm just naming why I find naming type to be something I still enjoy. And maybe I'll evolve away from that. But I'm yeah. wondering if that's just an image center thing that it's like part of the identity. And do we even need to drop that? But I think that given like wherever we are on our own path, sometimes there's just a little safety in feeling known, even though, of course, you don't really know me. I mean, yeah. I'm a unique human. I am not a three with a two wing that's self-pressed, social, sexual, blind, ENTP. There's like yeah. a million nuances. 
But I think that I have such a deep longing for intimacy that I feel like if you know that about me, now we can get underneath all of that and you can start to really know who and what I am. At least that's how I hold it in this moment and why I enjoy it. Because if you give me all of those maps, I know I I don't have to figure those things out. I can free up my capacity to tune into what you are beyond all of that and be a little more careful as I navigate some landmines that you might not even know that are there. But as a double assertive type, I'm very good at stepping into. Oh, wow. That's an interesting perspective. It's very different from how I think about it. I appreciate the way that you think. And for you, it sounds like a way, it's it's basically the same value. We're coming from the same value base is how, how do I connect? Yeah. And for me, how I connect is by forgetting your type as soon as possible. So interesting. Like, and for me, it's remembering it so that I don't <laughs> inadvertently cause harm by going right with my finger into one of your wounds. And that's probably because you have nine and four energy, whereas I have three, seven, one energy. I have no withdrawn and a two wing. So it's all zhoom. So I have to be really oh. present of where I go because everything in my structure is driving me into your space that you may or may not have given me permission for and that you may or may not be ready for me to enter. So it almost puts up like big red flashing lights for me, like approach these areas with more care than your structure is likely to have access to in a given moment if you're not present. You know, when I hear you say that, I just think, Kara, trust yourself a bit more. It's like your super ego is giving you all these warnings that I I really would personally feel you don't need, you know. Uh, but I've caused a lot of harm. I can give you the list of people who have experienced this for me and have given me very direct feedback that that is exactly what happens. So that's where my self-prez is like, oh, I've reality checked this. <laughs> like, like a lot of times. <laughs> Yeah, Ingrid, go away with your magical thinking. (laughs) But I'm open to it. I'm going to remember this and I'm going to totally ask myself, like, why are you there? I say that there's this funny mnemonic I use, which is wait, why am I talking? But I'm going to change it to wait, why am I typing? Yeah, that's a good one. But I just imagine, you know, we find... Like that for me is a good dichotomy. It's like, do I have to manage my time so carefully, real uh-huh. time? Like rein myself in, do this, do that. That for me is very super ego driven. Yes. Whereas if I drop into my actual heart where I trust the fact that I care about you, that there's something there that if if we can stay attuned to that, then we don't need to worry about how are we going to go wrong? And we all are anyway, right. you know. But I but think with, it's being okay with going wrong. That's probably the piece is being more okay with just not getting it right. That's and that also one fix. Myself to repair. Yeah. You know, like if you do go off the rails and you say something and you notice me flinch a little bit, or you know, or say, oh, that that you've got the awareness and the attunement to be able to say oh did I go too far or something like that and we can instantly repair our connection and but I feel like 
my appeal because of how I experience you is can you can you trust the tenderness of your heart because it's so obvious to me yes and I want to acknowledge that I have many many experiences of people having a bad experience with me cutting me off and never engaging with me ever again and that oh. is that's the trauma wound that I've also had to work with because even that whole ghosting or that withdrawing love or that not being here for yeah. you because you're not showing up the way that I want you to is oh. where my wounding has happened. Yeah, that is super painful. Hey? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, that's... we're all working with it. We're all on a journey. And I'm noticing that my longing to care for you is noticing we're at the time that you said that you had to go. And so part of being a good interview host is also making sure that we don't float off into the fun of this conversation. And what, yeah. And what I'd love to say is that I really hope that we can, you know, do this again at some point. You always stimulate interesting thoughts when you post in your community. So I will put into the show notes how people can connect with Ingrid and work with her as well as join the Facebook community if you'd love to follow along. And is there any closing words that you'd like to say, Ingrid, before I let you get on to the rest of your day? Yes, that please in this inner work, let us be kind to ourselves and become a safe and very warm inner home to our own experience. That word warmth that you used, yeah. I used to say the Thich Nhat Hanh quote of, I am home for you, my anxiety. I am home for you, my anger. That's what he teaches. Mm. But from your word, I'd like to make it, I am a warm home for you, my anxiety. And I feel the I'm need to add my mantra home. to that, which is, your anger is welcome here. Your shame is welcome here. Your fear is welcome here. It's like, let's yeah. love it up. Oh, look at that yes. little part. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. I so appreciate you inviting me. Thank you, Ingrid. Have a wonderful day. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while Essence MD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.